The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today it is my absolute pleasure and honor to welcome Frances Moore LaPay. I don't think Ms. LaPay really needs any introduction. However, I will say that she is the author of 18 books, including probably her most influential, which is Diet for a Small Planet. She is the co-founder of three organizations, including Food First, the Institute for Food and Development Policy, and more recently, the Small Planet Institute, which is a collaborative network for research and popular education seeking to bring democracy to life. And I want to just mention that the most important topic on our list today is going to be Ms. LaPay's new book, which is EcoMind, and it's all about changing the way we think to create the world we want. Francis, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be talking to you. Well, I have to tell you, Diet for a Small Planet was certainly on my bookshelf as a new dietitian, and I remember bringing it to some hospital patients early on in the late 70s, trying to help people change the way we ate. And I agree with you in that in order to change the way we eat and the way we farm, we have to change the way we think. I love the title of your book, EcoMind. You invite us to think like an ecosystem, and I wonder if you could elaborate on that. What does thinking like an ecosystem mean? In a really simple way, it just means thinking in relationships that everything is connected to everything. And the world that we absorb unconsciously, the mindset that we absorb, is so different from that. It's if we were all separate from one another and we're in this competitive struggle over scarcity. So I call the opposite of the eco-mind, I call it the scarcity mind. And the eco-mind, because it is evidence-based, it's based now in what we're learning through all the sciences, on uh, both the physical sciences and natural sciences, we're learning that the nature of nature is connection and change. And therefore, we are all co-creators of our reality. So that's a very different view than the scarcity mind, which says that, you know, it's based in the idea of separateness and stasis and scarcity. So I really feel it is the emergent view that is growing out of the new science, but it's all great, you know, learning. It's also uh, reflecting the ancient wisdom traditions that basically told us that that is the nature of life. So... It's very simple on one level. I mean, let me just say, and as I uh, conclude this, this first answer to your question, is that it dawned on me when I was first in my, you know, back in my 20s when I was looking at world hunger and realized that people were talking about it simply in terms of quantities, numbers of calories versus numbers of people. And then I realized, wait, there was more than enough quantity in terms of these numbers but we were actively creating hunger because the relationships among people were so out of whack that people didn't have the money, the power to buy what they needed to feed themselves, even though there was more than enough food. And it's even more true today. So that's really, just to bring it down to something very concrete, uh, the difference between a quantitative 
a way of seeing life and this relational one where we look at what are the human relationships that shape our capacity to thrive. Well, it's interesting. I, I love the way you've crafted this book and that you've got thought traps and then you've got thought leaps for the ego mind. And the way I read books is I tend to jump around a bit. And so I want to, I want to have an opportunity to talk about each of the traps and the way we want to leap into a better way of thinking. But I have to bring up something that I discovered, a little treasure here on page 175, where you talk about Diet for a Small Planet and your favorite chapter, Who Asked for Fruit Loops? And I, I think this, this lends well to your last statement because you talk about how every step of the way we were degrading our food for profit and power for the few. And I think that really sets the stage well for why we need to take the leap. Right. And I underscore there that it wasn't because suddenly we got really unprincipled people in the head of our food corporations. It was because we established the context, and this is the other lesson of an eco-mind, the context is what influences every organism, including the human organism. And so we created a corporate context, a set of stimuli, if you will, like in nature, that brought out these decisions. In other words, corporate executives, biggest food corporations, then say, oh, well, we've got to bring the highest return to our shareholders, so therefore how are we going to do that? Oh, we are going to process more of what we sell because there's a higher profit margin on processed food and it has a longer shelf life. And, of course, that degrades it right there when you move away from whole foods. And we're going to add things that we know kind of hook people, like more salt and more sugar. And and even with sugar, we're going to go for the cheapest. And, therefore, high fructose corn syrup started being ubiquitous in virtually all processed food. And so it wasn't that somebody sat down and said, I'm going to really make the American people sick. No, it was simply that... We set the context, we as a society set the context in which there was only one end, and that end was highest return to shareholder. And so today, there are 10 corporations that are responsible for about half the products in our supermarket following, of course, that rule. Even though we walk into a supermarket and we see 30,000 products with all these different labels that look like competition, but it's really turned into this extreme monopoly situation. Yeah, the illusion of choice. Yes, the illusion of choice. <laughs> well, on page 46, you say something that I think is very important for all of us. And I think there is an awakening. I'm hopeful that there is. But you argue that our lives could be vastly richer if we aligned ourselves with the laws of nature. And this whole idea of consumerism really reflects a deep need for connection with others. You know, this is so interesting for me because I think in our culture, we again, we receive this message that human beings are so self-centered and individualistic and separate from one another, but I'm kind of flipping that around and saying, actually, we are so social. It matters so much what people think of us that we're vulnerable to advertising that tells us that we have to buy this or buy that in order to be acceptable, to be socially acceptable, whether it's, you know, wrinkle cream or to be safe, we have to buy new electronic burglar alarms or you name it, Mm -hmm. whatever it is that the latest model car, that actually it's all about how do we get standing with our peers. And so 
what I'm saying, if we really recognize that about human nature, that we need to feel accepted as part of the community, then the way to go about that is how do we consciously create, satisfy that need directly through richer and richer community life so that we will feel less need to go for the substitute, to go for the, you know, the pseudo connection through purchasing. So one of my lines in there, which I kind of like, was uh, the goal is a community of common purpose instead of common purchase. Oh, and I love that. So yes. that that is really a lot about this idea of alignment. And that whole notion is also tied into my Thought Trap, Thought Leap part of this book about how often environmentalists say our problem is that we've hit the limits of a finite earth. And I try to really drum home that actually what we're doing is not the earth limits that we've hit. It is rather the disruption of the natural uh, regeneration of nature that our own economic rules have generated. And once we align with nature, then there is more than enough for all of us. And I think that reframing is more than a semantical, you know, just a word change. It really helps relax, at least me. It helps me uh, breathe a sigh of relief when I realize that if we were aligning our energy systems or as we do align our energy systems, our food systems, with the laws of nature, then there is no scarcity for individuals. I mean, there is more than enough for all of us. Mm -hmm. We seem to get a message drummed into us about how we've got to produce more. We've got to produce more food. We're, you know, we're, we're living on this finite planet, and we need more, more, more. And that's not exactly where we should be coming from, is it? No, not in a world in which actually there's at least 20, more than 20% more food per person than when I wrote Diet for a Small Planet, and yet we have more hungry people. So clearly <laughs> that emphasis, and then you brought up, you know, appropriately, you know, the quality of our food, that 40% now of the calories that our children in the U.S. are eating, our young children are eating, is empty calories. So that is another way in which, you know, we are actively creating scarcity, scarcity of healthy food in our bodies when abundance is all around us. And so just, again, focusing on how do we produce more and more and more, we end up actually creating more food and yet more hunger and more ill health. We've turned food into a health hazard. I guess we should let our listeners know that the way this book is crafted is that you have provided us with seven thought traps and then ways to leap out of them. So we've touched on some of them, but let's focus on a few that jumped out at me, this whole idea of growth. So the thought trap is that endless growth is destroying our beautiful planet, so we must shift to no-growth economics. What is the thought leap out of that? Well, the first thing that troubles me about that framing, which a lot of us environmentalists have used, is that it kind of blesses or, you know, it, it sort of leads us to believe that what we are now doing is something positive, which is, for most people, growth is a positive thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, except when you have cancer cells in your body, I mean, right. growth is a positive thing. We want our children to grow we want our plants to grow. We want our love to grow. So growth is generally good. And so to describe what we're doing now with a positive term is to me highly misleading. Because actually I argue that what our economy is is not a growth economy, but one of waste and destruction. 
And what I mean by that is today, from 55% to as much as 87%, very serious scientists have, have estimated in that range of all energy in the U.S., potentially that is there for us, that is currently we're trying to employ, it is wasted. It is wasted. The incandescent light bulb, it's, it's less than 5% of the energy actually returns to us in light when we use an incandescent light bulb. Food, we are wasting worldwide about a third of all of our food. And here in the U.S., it's much more than that. So the waste and destruction really is what we should think about when we think about our current system. And the question should be, how do we create growth in what we need to thrive that is aligned with the laws of nature? And that requires that we redefine the gross domestic product. Because right now, as I'm sure you know, you know, a lot of that which goes into these measures is actually, again, destruction. Like higher health care bills actually increase our gross domestic product. And, you that's know, more right. car crashes on the highway, that's more spending that people have to do to get replace their cars. I mean, all these negatives actually contribute to the growth of something. So we have to change that measure. And the good news is that some are starting to change that. There are several states in the U.S., including, including the state of Maryland, but uh, also nations are really, in Europe, are really beginning to rethink that and to come up with what many are calling a, a genuine progress indicator. I love the way you say it's not growth versus no growth. It's the focus on flourishing, which is true, genuine progress. And you also have identified six essential traits that are important for us to make these leaps. And I have to jump to that because there's one trait that I've often wondered myself about, and that is this idea of empathy. We must have cooperation, empathy, fairness, efficacy, meaning all of those things are important for us to have this flourishing society. But I wonder what your thoughts are on how do we develop empathy in our society? Well, I'm saying that all of those qualities are in most of us mm. to be elicited, to be brought out if we create the conditions that enhance them, that do bring them out. So um, most of us have them. I mean, there are psychopaths who don't. But empathy, we're now discovering, is actually soft-wired into us, that there are neurons in our brains that when we observe another person, that they fire as if we were that person. That's how empathetic we are. You know, when you see somebody burn their hand on a on a flame, you, you jump because you're that connected to the other person. That's just who we are. Mm-hmm. So how do we enhance those? I think clearly that we know, for example, in the stories I, I tell about school children, of making them aware of, I tell this, I love the story about a kindergarten class in which the teacher encouraged the children to think through and talk through themselves this question. Should we create a rule in our classroom that it's not fair to say you can't play? You can't say that you can't play. In other words, you can't tell the other child that no, they can't enter enter into your playing, whatever you're doing. And the kids really worked through that. And they realized that well, yes, we could have this rule, and then I don't have to be afraid that I'm going to be the one to be cut out. And the teacher said she could just hear the sigh of relief. Mm. But the idea here is the teaching of empathy in the sense of 
really having an in, involving young people enough to understand uh, and to reflect of how it feels to be the excluded one and be willing then to put in place a rule that then made it safe for everyone in that classroom. So that is the kind of thing, certainly, that I think can help contribute to empathy. Mm-hmm. Um, but also just, you know, when I think of our political culture today, I mean, we can be setting goal as a culture to have rules of the media, certainly norms that we do not embarrass and, you know, speak, uh, mm-hmm. call, call each other names. Yes, a more I mean, civil as, society. As a rule in public life. I mean, I think that is a cultural norm that has been in decline for some time, but that by speaking out and refusing to participate in it, we can reverse that. Mm-hmm. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Frances Morla Pay. She is the author of 17 books, including her seminal work, Diet for a Small Planet, which now has 3 million copies in print. That's just amazing. And I do want to mention that your new book, EcoMind, really comes at such an important time in our history. We've got to change the way we think to create the world we want and certainly change our food system. And I, I want to let our listeners know, there. you know, your book has a, an introduction, and of, of course, and Howard Zinn says something beautiful about you. He says, a small number of people in every generation are forerunners in thought, action, and spirit who hold a torch high for the rest of us. Lape is one of those. What a beautiful thing to have said about you. And I know that you and your daughter, Anna, have traveled the world and collected stories of hope. And if I were to put one word, actually, in front of you, it would be the word hope. And even with your seven thought traps and leaps, they are all leaps of hope. And I want to get back to the traps. We're not going to have time to go over all of them, but there are a few that jumped out at me. One was this idea that Oh my gosh, it's too late. Human beings have come so far. We've overshot what nature can handle. We're beyond the point of return. And you say, with hope, no, it's not too late for life. I think that you just said it. Life loves life. And I really think that hope is the natural state of being for our species. That what is hope? It is the life force coming through us. And so the question is, Now, what is blocking that hope, that natural way of being uh, energized about the future and feeling effective? And so what this book is really about, my intent in writing it, is to help remove some of the thought obstacles in our path so that we can feel effective. The slogan of our institute that my daughter Anna and I run, Small Planet Institute, is simply, hope is not what we find in evidence, it's what we become in action. And hope requires, therefore, that we engage because it's when we feel futile that our actions are meaningless and we just are despairing. You know, that is really death. You know, whether it's walking death or or actual death, it's not the human way of being. We could never have made it to 7 billion if we were fundamentally defeatist. And so how do we free that spirit? Since I wrote the book, I was struck in hearing about the miners who were trapped, you remember, in Mm -hmm. Chile. And 
that afterward, most of them suffered post-traumatic stress syndrome, except for the person who'd been the most engaged down there and helping the others stay organized. And it just said, I, kind of a light bulb went on for me. And that is what I'm hoping with this book, is to help people be one of the people on our planet now who can feel effective and therefore immune from that sense of despair and futility. And so that means, though, that I like to put the word honest in front of the word hope, you know, because I mean something other than simply putting on rose-colored glasses, obviously. That's right. So honest hope for me means that we have to think like an ecosystem and really dig through the patterns of connection to see some of the causes, what are the root causes, so we see those leverage points. We see those points of entry that we can turn the system. And that's where, at the end of the book, I get to some of my heroes, uh, like Deb Simpson, the woman who ran yes. for office in Maine because there was fair elections there. Exactly. And she could run using public financing, even though she was a waitress and she had no name or money herself, but she could get public support to run for office and be elected and not be accountable to corporations, but to herself and her own conscience and her own constituency. And so that kind of thing of looking at what are, if we think like an ecosystem, then we see the patterns and we see things like the role of big money and corporate spending in our election as one of the things that clearly has to change to create rules that are aligned with nature. I love that story about her. And I think by having these stories, you give examples that can be replicated. There was another story in the book talking about thinking like an ecosystem, about the role of the fig tree mm. and this idea that cutting down one tree is never yeah. about one tree. It's that every act has these multiple effects and that we don't see these interrelationships underground of the root systems. Talk about that a little bit because it's a beautiful visual. Well, that story comes from the person I've long called since Anna and I met her. I call her my lodestar of courage. She passed away last September. I'm talking about Wangari Mathai, the right. Nobel Peace Prize winner and founder of the Greenbelt Movement in Kenya. And she embodies this idea of civil courage, the idea that, and that we can become more courageous by bringing people like this into our consciousness. Because she grew up in the Rift Valley in Kenya, and her mother always told her, you know, when you go out for firewood to collect the wood, never touch the fig tree, never cut the fig tree. And she didn't know why her mother had said that. And then later, after she became educated, she was educated in Oklahoma, went back to Kenya. And she then understood as a biologist that that fig tree, an ancient tree, had deep, deep roots. And it was because of those deep roots that the water that hit this very parched area could then go into the ground and flow into the stream and keep that stream alive. And so she realized that since she had left and had come back, that the fig tree had been cut. And so the stream that she had played in as a child was gone. And then she understood, of course, what her mother was saying, why she said, Wangari, don't touch the fig tree. And she had this deeper ecological understanding by then. But that wisdom was embodied in the culture of her mother in the Rift Valley in Kenya, and that is what we now have to retrieve, that sense of connectedness to all. And it is so much, I just think, a more 
I don't know, the word is more at peace way of living. When we feel that we are separate from nature and one another, it can feel terrifying, so lonely. Yes. And to have that sense of connection with everything around us, uh, it can be painful when we see it hurting, but it can also give us great comfort. Mm-hmm. So I want to jump away from your new book, and I want to recommend that everyone look at EcoMind, Changing the Way We Think to Create the World We Want. And if you want just a little taste of this, you can go to the Center for Eco-Literacy, and that's at www.ecoliteracy.org, and look at the essays. Thinking like an ecosystem will give you just a little taste here. But I want to jump into something that we had been talking about earlier, and that has to do with democracy, which actually is the leap from this book, talking about democracy and restoring a sense of connection and relationship. But you've been dealing with an issue that is insidious. It erodes our democracy. And it has to do with a publication that came out of the Oxford University Press. And it's written by an author whose connections to the agricultural industry may not be so well understood. Would you like to talk about that? Well, I became very distressed last year and then uh, am collaborating with six distinguished scholars from around the world on this problem that you're identifying because Oxford University Press, I had always understood, was the gold standard of of scholarly standards and that one of the basic requirements of any scholar is to disclose any potential conflict of interest, even that might have an appearance of conflict of interest. So this particular book is called Food Politics, What Everyone Needs to Know. And I was deeply distressed because there are no citations in this book, so you do not know where the information is coming from. And the uh, author, Robert Parbrook, does not disclose that he has been an advisor to the Monsanto company, even though in the book he defends that corporation and what they produce, genetically modified organisms. They are the major supplier in the world. And as well, the book is advertised by Oxford University Press as a map of the contested terrain, as if it is somehow above the fray, so to speak. And also I think the subtitle communicates that, what everyone needs to know, when it is in fact a very narrow argument for genetically modified organisms and continued use of of chemical agriculture. Unfortunately, our time is nearing an end, and I want to be able to give our listeners a source, perhaps Mm -hmm. at smallplanet.org, where they can sign a petition about this atrocity. Would that be, yes. would that be correct? Okay. So mm-hmm. smallplanet.org and also scholarly standards at risk. But if you go to uh, Small Planet, we will have uh, information there about it as well. All right. I encourage all of our listeners to take a look at this issue. It is extremely important. So www.smallplanet.org to learn more about EcoMind changing the way we think to create the world we want, and also getting involved in this atrocity, this insidious nature of what's going on with our institutions and our publications. Anything you want to leave us with, Francis, as a charge? Well, I'm just delighted to have this opportunity, and I just hope that our work here at Small Planet, and my daughter also wrote Diet for Hot Planet. I'll give her a plug 
So I'm just thrilled at this uh, show that you're creating. So thank you so much. Well, I want to thank you. We've been speaking with Frances Moore LaPay. She really needs no introduction. She is the author of many books. The one we remember the most is Diet for a Small Planet. But her new book, EcoMind, Changing the Way We Think to Create the World We Want, is exceptional. I want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you, listeners, for joining us. And thank you, Francis Morlepay, for being my guest. My great delight. Thank you. Thank you.